What is going on, my fellow chlamydiots? It's me, Tim. Just wanted to check in with y'all. How's your pride doing? Good? I hope so, because my pride is going swimmingly, getting railed, getting loads of sleep. <laughs> I'm so tired. Uh, but seriously, how have you been? I want to hear from you. Give me a voicemail, a DM, an email. I'd love to know how your pride is doing because this can be both a fun and a stressful time for us gay people, uh, especially for my brothers, sisters, siblings in the U.S. with the whole drag band thing. You know, pride has always been about, like, love is love, but we all know that's not enough anymore. It's got to be like, protect trans kids, make sure that gay and lesbian children are alive and give us our rights, I guess. You know, respect us as human beings. Is that too much to ask? I hope not. Uh, so wherever you are in your pride season, festivities, whatever it is that you're doing, I hope you're all having a wonderful time. And I also wanted to bring up something that happened in the last bonus episode with Kirby. He brought up conversion therapy. This episode is going to be about conversion therapy. I try to make light of it as much as I can, but eh, we'll see. I <laughs> don't know what the hell it is I'm doing with this kind of heavy topic. Basically, trigger warnings all around. Luckily, though, my guest is Dr. Luke Wilson, and he's a very intelligent man, very cute, and he is going to go through the entire gamut of conversion therapy ins and outs, I guess is what we can call it. I also want to apologize for how the sound is going to be in this episode. The audio is all garbled for some reason. I don't know. I'm just trying to work with what I have, and this fucking Wi-Fi is uh, homophobic, to say the least. And during Pride Month of all months, ugh. But let's be serious here. When did I ever promise quality? You signed up for garbage, and you keep ingesting garbage, so I shall keep giving garbage. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Please, listen. Try to enjoy the show, try to enjoy Pride, and I hope to see you, if you're in Toronto, like, say hi, but also just remember I'm very jumpy and I am a ball of anxiety. Please don't touch me. <laughs> Anyways, that's enough of my rambling. Enjoy the show. The Sex Ed with Tim podcast is recorded on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people. We acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13, signed with the Mississaugas of the Credit, and the Williams Treaty, signed with multiple Mississaugas and Chippewa bands. You're listening to Sex Ed with Tim. <laughs> Thank you.
Hello and welcome to another episode of the Sex Ed with Tim podcast. I'm your host, Tim, certified sex educator. I am identifi- I'm identifying <laughs> as a chaotic homo. And did y'all hear about that article about gay conversion therapy? Because it was shocking. But I'm uh, all right. So enough of that. <laughs> This is take two. <laughs> so, God damn Wi-Fi. <laughs> uh, such bullshit. All right, my dearest audience, if you didn't pick up on that really awful dad joke, we're going to be talking all about gay conversion therapy. And who better than to talk about this than a guy who's done gay con? No, he's not a gay conversion therapist, but rather, um. <laughs> He's a postdoctoral fellow, and you've seen him on, let's see, what what is it that you've done, like, podcast-wise? Breaking Brave, Gay Men Going Deeper, The Cult of Christianity. Uh, you have made headlines with that article from Advocate about Liberty University. And if you've been on Netflix lately, you've probably seen him on Cook at All Costs. Please welcome <laughs> to the show, Dr. Luke Wilson. Damn. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for calling me all the way from motherfucking Brazil. Luke, <laughs> how's your trip there so Yo, how did I end up here? What's going on? Where am I? Uh, no, I, I'm I'm here for uh, a few months to escape the Canadian winter. Though I do have to go back to Calgary uh, in March, so that's going to be a rude awakening. But until then, uh, we are enjoying the extreme heat of Sao Paulo. Oh my God, I am jealous because it is. I, I'm freezing my balls off as we speak. They're like uh, popsicles down there. Um, <laughs> I, I am actually kind of curious also about like, <laughs> I, I'm so sorry, Luke, like you're, you've got all this accreditation to you and like academe, academia, academic background, whatever. And I'm here kind of just like fucking around. And <laughs> Yo, <laughs> I'm just, I, I'm, you have Matt, you, I have all my respect. I'm, I'm just going to fooling people and I have a few letters behind my name, but uh, really, I'm just a, what do you call that? A grade A dummy from Toronto. <laughs> grade A dummy from Toronto. Yeah. At least you say it correctly. Toronto. Yeah, you got that right. <laughs> I've heard uh, Torontonians that say Toronto and it's like, no. No. Wrong. You know they're not from Toronto when they say Toronto. Say Toronto. Oh, God, it's Toronto. Uh, so Luke, I'm curious also, like, about your time at Cook at All Costs, like, how's Jordan? Because that guy's a <laughs> Jordan was quite nice. Um, yeah, he was he was very kind to me. Yeah, we uh, if you if you've seen the episode, you know that we get into it a little bit. Although I don't really get into it, I'm, I I just kind of stay out of it, and maybe that's what sparked the 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 dispute. Anyway, you'll understand what I mean when you see the show. But Jordan's great. My fellow contestants were great. The show was great. It was so much fun to do. Uh, and I would do it all again in a heartbeat. Oh my god, you were robbed. I'm sorry, but you were totally robbed. I wanted <laughs> you to win. <laughs> and uh, thank you. You know what? Like my non-biased, biased opinion. You were robbed. <laughs> thank you. I'll take it. I, I, one of the one of the story producers asked me afterwards. She said, "Why did you? You know, why did you apply to the show?" I said, "Well, I was here to, to so that when they make Queer Eye uh, Canada." I can be the culinary expert, but now that I lost, I don't know if they're gonna if they're gonna want me. 
Oh my god! I mean, you're definitely much better than Anthony. Like, <laughs> like I saw what you were cooking there. Like, holy shit! The ingredients that you were given. What the yeah. fuck? It was, it was like, wild. The most like off. Yeah, that was crazy. But hey, that got your name on the map, and that's amazing. Thank <laughs> Just you. Another one of your many credits to your Thank name. Thank you. And We're not here to talk about Netflix or whatever, because uh, this is actually going to be part of the Pride series of the show. And what well, better to talk about during Pride than conversion therapy? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing says Pride like conversion therapy. Am I right? Conversion therapy. <laughs> Right. So, first, I want to ask you, Luke, why study this? Like, why is this like a thing that you focus on? It just seems yeah. very traumatizing for us gays. So, uh, yeah, yeah uh, t walk us back through like yeah your work. So, most of my work actually started in Holocaust studies. I don't necessarily pick the most uplifting topics, but these are topics that stand out to me for a number of reasons. The Holocaust specifically, um, I remember I, I, was, I was very religious for a very long time, and I first learned about, uh, not that I first learned about the Holocaust, but it was the first time I had read a personalized account of a, of a person who uh, went through the Holocaust. And I remember then it kind of blew me away. And I remember sitting, you know, in the class, we'd read what we had read. We read Elie Wiesel's uh, memoir, Night, uh, or not memoir, but I should more so say spiritual autobiography, but neither here nor there. I, we read this, this book and I remember just being dumbfounded, being like, how in the world could this have happened? You know, how did, uh, at the time I had a very much a theological sort of line of inquiry. I was like, how did God allow this to happen? And really quickly, I realized there were no answers to that question. <laughs> God seems to be pretty silent about a lot of things. So. I uh, then turned my attention to thinking about how did men and women allow this to happen and how did people perpetrate this? How did people stand by? And so these sorts of ethical or moral questions really came to the fore and have always been what have, uh, you know, guided my way throughout my academic uh, trajectory. And so I looked at Holocaust survivor uh, literature, then I looked at Nazi propaganda, you know, looking at the other side of the coin, how did people, uh, again, perpetrate this? And then uh, looking then thereafter at the intergenerational transmission of trauma from Holocaust survivors to their kids, to their grandkids. And along the way, uh, you know, I was trying to build some sort of academic profile, trying to build my resume or my CV uh, more specifically. And I thought to myself, when people look at my, my academic record, they're going to see Liberty University. And for anyone who knows what Liberty University is, uh, it's a it's a grade A horrible institution when it comes to academics. The my education there was abysmal. Um, by the time I got to grad school, I was so underprepared, and so I decided I really wanted to write an article and separate myself from Liberty. And the way to do that was to write about my experience in conversion therapy there. So, um, in part, to answer your question, you know, why did I choose conversion therapy as an academic focus? It was a result of going through conversion therapy myself. But also, you know, thinking about how in the past, you know, a lot of the questions I was uh, sort of pursuing related to ethics or morality, I thought to myself, how do people allow themselves to go through conversion therapy? And again, sort of an autobiographical question, but also how do people think that this is an okay for quote unquote therapy? And of course, for everyone who knows uh, or has heard about conversion therapy, this is not therapy. This is pseudoscience that is passed off as therapy or a therapeutic endeavor. And of course, it's not. It's instead that which compounds issues related to mental health rather than alleviate them. And so I decided that I wanted to focus a lot of my attention on conversion therapy, not only to talk, to work through my own past, my own biography, but also to make sure that this uh, ends and this isn't someone else's reality in the future. 
Oh my God, Luke. <laughs> I have so many questions because starting from the fact that you experienced gay conversion therapy yourself, holy shit. <laughs> Can I start with that? Like, first of all, how? And second of all, why? And third of uh, all, huh? <laughs> Tim, all very good questions. So I... Again, I, I come from a very religious background. I don't I, I was not raised in a Christian home. I actually chose Christianity, specifically evangelical Christianity, for myself when I was in high school. Um, which is its own story and we can also dive into that. But to answer your question is to have Okay, Tammy Faye Baker. <laughs> um, you should see the makeup I'm wearing. It looks identical. So <laughs> I <laughs> I I decided uh, when I became a Christian that it was not okay to be gay, or maybe more accurately decided for me that it was not okay to be gay. And within the world of evangelicalism, the, the either-or reigns supreme, right? It's this very binary way of understanding the world, right, rotten, good, evil, of the enemy, of God, etc., etc. And I understood very quickly that, and very early on, that it was not okay to be gay within this within this culture, within this world. And so um, that was, of course, building on my my mom's homophobia that I knew I was not going to be able to come out of the closet anytime soon because I was living under Cheryl's roof. Your mom was homophobic. Oh, oh my, Cheryl! I remember one time we were leaving the, for the cottage. We were going away. To, our cottage is in Niagara, and we I grew up in Toronto. So we were leaving, uh, and I grew up down in the beaches, and so I, we were on the, the gardener. We were, we were leaving Toronto, and it was Gay Pride Parade, or it was Gay Pride Weekend. And I remember my mom was talking about those, those, those gays, and they're up there on those floats, and they're, they're shaking their, their, their junk around and all this kind of stuff. And <laughs> so I decided I'd stay silent, uh, and silent I was for years. And so when I, when I became a Christian, actually at the time that my mom said that I was a Christian, I, I knew that I wasn't allowed, I wasn't allowed to be, to be gay, quote unquote. And I was under the impression because it was explained to me that I could ultimately, uh, become straight. Not that I had come out or outed myself to any of my, my youth leaders or my pastors or, uh, my friends. Again, I, I knew that I should keep this to myself. Though, of course, I do think that they all knew. I mean, like, I watched a lot of HGTV growing up. Like, how did they not know? You know what I mean? But, <laughs> yeah, and I cooked and I, you know. Homo and gardening. <laughs> exactly. exactly. And I went to Rosedale Heights School of the Arts. The writing was on the wall, my friends. So it was, it was just that I hadn't articulated it, you know, verbally. Uh, but I had articulated it through, you know, all my uh, extracurricular activity. But in either case, I was, I knew that I wasn't able to to come out. And so when I was made aware that there was such thing as pastoral counseling, which is in the Christian world, a dog whistle for, or a, a code for gay conversion therapy, I decided that I wanted to pursue that. And so I had applied to well, at this point I hadn't applied, but I had found out about this school, Liberty University, and I got a free trip to go down there. So I went down and it was there that there was this announcement that I saw, like an almost like an ad that said something along the lines of like, do you struggle with same-sex attraction? Which is again, code for, are you gay? And I was like, I struggle, I struggle with same-sex attraction. So uh, it said, if you do, like- I struggle with same-sex attraction as a gay man myself. Yeah, I still do, it's crazy. They, so we get to, uh, I see this ad and I'm like, oh my goodness, I, you know, this is me. Like I, I need to see this person. And so I saw, that it said, if you, if this is you, then again, like you can like contact this person on campus and the person's name was Dane Emmerich. And so afterwards I said to one of my friends who I was there with, 
I said, um, hey, like, what's this, what's this ad about, uh, you know, struggling with same-sex attraction, huh? Isn't that funny kind of thing? And meanwhile, it was just like me wanting to know more. And so he said, oh yeah, that's Dane Emmerich. And so that name stuck in my head. I wrote it down and I went home and I, and I researched this guy and I saw that he was someone on campus at Liberty University who helps guys who were quote unquote struggling with safe subtraction and also quote unquote helped that he didn't help anyone. But I decided from that point forward that I wanted to go to this school because I thought if I go to this school, I can, I can, you know, become straight. I can, I can, you know, overcome quote unquote, my, my same sex attraction. And so, uh, that was a big deciding or the big motivating reason as to why I actually applied and then ultimately went to the school. And then ultimately why I even stayed at the school was because of this guy, this guy, Dane Emmerich, who, uh, you know, was supposed to, um, help me get on the straight and narrow pun completely intended, but I didn't. And I wasn't really coming to terms with being a gay man until, you know, years after I attended this university. It was in Lynchburg, Virginia. But nonetheless, uh, that was that, that was how I got into it. That's how I, 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 I quote unquote wanted it because I was told I wanted to become straight because within the evangelical world, there's no other... Uh, alternative other than being straight. If you're not straight, then you're you're not a part of the fold, and therefore uh, you can't be an evangelical. Oh my God, <sighs> Jesus! <sighs> it, it's like bringing up a lot of my own like religious trauma as a recovering Catholic myself. Yeah. But I've never had the displeasure of going through gay conversion therapy, and I've only like you know heard about the horrors of it, where it's like you know, actually using electroshock therapy, but can you, uh, or like, if it's okay with you, like, can you talk us through what actually happened in these sessions with Dane Emmerich? Yeah, totally. So I'll say right off the bat that I was not one who experienced electroshock therapy, thankfully, uh, though I do know people who have. My conversion therapy experience was different, and I think that everyone's conversion therapy experience is ultimately different. And so some people experience... Uh, physical harm. Some people experience only, and I, sh I say only as if it's like that's it. But uh, abuse, religious abuse. But for me, it was it was definitely uh, the latter. It wasn't physical. It was it was emotional and spiritual and religious abuse that I experienced. But conversion therapy for me at, at the beginning consisted of me meeting with this pastor one on one, and at first he asked me like a lot of really detailed questions about my sexual history and sexual present. Um, which was very strange, right? When you're this, you know, 18 year old kid uh, having to detail what you think yeah, about <laughs> right? your business, <laughs> you know, there's this old man just sitting there asking all these really detailed questions. Like, oh yeah. Tell me more. Tell me more. And they're like, I don't want to. Okay. But I'll tell you. How often so, do you masturbate young boy? <laughs> oh, I mean, it was those kinds of questions. What do you think about when you masturbate? Like, have you ever thought about your dad? Like these kinds of things. Oh my um, God. Yeah. And it was, you know, very strange, very personal, very bizarre. Um, and they, he asked a lot of questions about my mom and my dad and, and, you know, it was very much like sort of trying to adopt a, a Freudian approach. And of course he didn't, like it was very pseudo Freudian. He had no real idea what he was doing. This man uh, didn't, you know, have proper training to be uh, a counselor, let alone, uh, you know, helping someone who's, you know, 18 and vulnerable, right? <laughs> he asked me a lot of these questions and then he would ask me questions about my brothers, about my sister, about my friends and all this kind of stuff and really was trying to get this foundation of understanding of who I was. And within conversion therapy thinking, if we can call it thinking, it's this emphasis on a shattered relationship between your you and your parents. So for the father, if you're a gay man, a gay male, should I say, uh, you, they, what they expect is that you have a, a broken relationship with your dad uh, who was either absentee or emotionally distant or abusive 
and a mother who's overbearing. Now, for me, it's like, yes, I did it. A gay man overbearing. with daddy <laughs> issues? Oh, my God. <laughs> but you know what? It wasn't even like, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I have daddy issues, but maybe I, I never had those resolved within conversion therapy. Um, but I, I certainly, I, I, def, I definitely had like mommy issues in the sense of like my mom was very overbearing and, and wasn't, you know, uh, uh, emotionally manipulative, you know, however you want to call it. Um, my dad, on the other hand, was phenomenal. Like I grew up with like a really, really great dad. My dad um, was arguably much more involved in my life than my mom. And I had a phenomenal relationship with him that, you know, we went to, or he came to all of my, you know, soccer games, my dance recitals, my, you know, performances, like everything and anything I did, my chess games. I was the chess captain. <laughs> I was really cool growing up. I was the captain of my chess team. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my dad came to everything, right? And so my dad was phenomenal. And so that didn't fit the narrative that Dane Emmerich was pushing that I had this, you know, distant father or a, a abusive or whatever sort of father. But the other half of the narrative about my mom certainly did fit what he was pushing on me. And so he went with that. Um, and from there, Every week when I met with him, we had, you know, prayer time, like time of prayer where he was the one praying for me, not pre me praying for myself, which of course is indicative of how he was, you know, uh, speaking on my behalf to God and not me allowing, not allowing me to speak again, erasing my own voice and in, 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 in favor of his, you know, there was, uh, we, we read this manual. My manual was by Alan Medinger. It was called resuming, no growth into manhood, resuming the journey. <laughs> <laughs> and this this workbook yeah this like textbook it was it was filled with a lot of advice on like how to become a man and so part of it was like you should do carpentry and i remember being like oh, how very jesus of you like asking me to do like you know uh, to, to be a you know to do carpentry and do woodwork wink wink like what and so this was very lesbian <laughs> yeah i should have worn my birkenstock sandals to look more like jesus hey but yeah, so it was just <laughs> plaid. Yeah, so much plaid. Yeah, so this was this was part of the work or part of the time, and then uh, there was you know again every week I had to give like a detailed inventory of what I had done that week, whether it had been what he called slip ups, which were moments of giving into your temptation, or you know moments of victory where I overcame my temptation, and so. The thing about conversion therapy for me specifically, and also for, I'd say for most people, is not that the, the harm that's done is not just in the moment. And then there certainly were things in the moment that, that amplified, uh, you know, pre-existing issues for me, right? Like, I, I think that there was the guilt and the shame, right? The guilt feeling like, oh, I had done something wrong in that moment, or I had sinned here, I had sinned here, and then feeling bad about it, having to go confess it to him. And then, you know, making this bond between me and this man, which was then, you know, intensified over time where I felt more and more guilty because I didn't want to, you know, disappoint him, which that guilt, of course, over time turns into shame, right? When you think about how guilt is maybe you feel bad about a specific transgression or act. And then shame is where it's not just that you feel bad about that action, but then start feeling bad about yourself, that you're the problem. Not that you made a mistake, but that you yourself are the actual source of those uh, negative feelings. You are the issue. You are the problem. And that, you know, shame turns into self-hatred over time, which is where you hate yourself because you can't, you can't seem to, to, to shake this, this gay thing, right? That you're doing your best yet. And you're, you're, you're praying and you're fasting. And I literally would fast for weeks. Um, you know, uh, not at a, t you know, I'd, I'd fast for like a week here and a week there. And if I added up all those times I fasted, like there were like literally like in like months I didn't eat uh, because I was trying to, to, to get over this. Okay, yeah, skinny legend. Great for my weight. Yeah. But it was like these kinds of things, right? 
And these were the things that added up over time. And I would say, and also like the anxiety, because you're constantly thinking about how am I presenting? Am I presenting? And this is not something that only those who go through conversion therapy experience and say with the shame, say with the guilt, say with the self-hatred. These are all things that are um, a lot of queers experience, if not most queers. And that, you know, the anxiety where he's telling you, you should sit like this, you should walk like this, you should act like this so as to convince others and then in turn convince yourself that you're attracted to women. And so you start self-monitoring and you start really making sure that other people think you are straight. And over time, you know, again, you have this like anxiety that's constantly there and constantly building because you're constantly trying to to perform and emphasis here on the word perform because you are performing, you're acting, you're trying to be something that you're not an affect, a certain persona that is not who you are. And so these were the things that in the moment were certainly present, but over time they amplify and over time they get more and more intense, particularly the shame, and the self-hatred, because again, you think to yourself, you know, and I can give you a quick little um, illustration. I remember one night I, I had graduated from Liberty and I was at McMaster and I was doing my MA in English and my buddy and I were going to go to the pub. And so just before the pub, you know, I was finishing up washing the dishes and I was standing over at the sink and I was in the split level apartment, half in the basement, half above. And I, my, my kitchen was in the basement and I'm sitting over, sitting over the sink. It was like dark out. It was winter. And I remember just praying. I was like, God, like I have tried and I have tried and I have tried and I have tried to do whatever I possibly can in order to get over this. I have gone and I saw Pastor Dane. I went and, you know, I fasted, I've prayed, I've read my Bible, I've witnessed to people, I've brought people to Christ, I used to evangelize a lot, and that's a different story. But I was like, God, I've done all these things, and I've done everything that you've asked me to do, and yet somehow I'm still gay. What the hell is going on? And of course, again, God didn't say anything, and I don't know how I was expecting anything other than silence, but it was just that, I remember that was one of my breaking points where I was just like, I, and I was sobbing, I was just like bawling my eyes out. And it was that sort of like, that cruel optimism, this one scholar, she talks about, what's, she uses this phrase, cruel optimism, it's this optimism for something that is impossible from the very, from its very inception, which is to say that I wanted to become straight at the time. Of course, nowadays, I don't want to become straight. I don't want to be bored. But at the time, I did want to be straight. And I had this optimism. Ew, this is the last <laughs> thing I want to be, straight. Ugh. No thanks. And so I I had, you know, this optimism. That, but, <gasps> but at the time. Yeah. Readers. But at the time, I had this optimism that I could become straight. And of course, I, I was never going to become straight. at the time. But I didn't realize that. I didn't know that. But I was promised that. And so when you're promised something and that's not happening and, and you're told that God's going to give you deliverance from this, but that never happens, you know, you think, okay, so if God's perfect and God doesn't make any mistakes, the problem must be me. I'm the problem. I'm the issue. And so that really, um, of course, you know, uh, confused me. And it was something that was effectively, a yeah, to, to put it academically, and <laughs> it was, it was quite tough. And it was something I struggled with for years. And it was only really through academia that I started to unbind myself from this theology and remove myself from this religious tradition, ultimately to the point of no longer being a Christian. I'm like, I'm not a person of faith at this point, and I'm not really spiritual either. But at the time I was, and it was very difficult, it was very hard to, to navigate these these things when I didn't have a support system or anyone to talk to, but really it was academia that allowed me that exit, that, that door out. We'll be right back after this commercial break. Yes. Hey, you sick motherfuckers. I've got a special treat for you. Need a new toy to spice up your sex life? Head over to loveshop.ca slash sexedmonton and get yourself a cock ring, a dildo, a vibrator, or even a life-sized sex doll. <laughs> 
Damn, I guess love really does come in all shapes and sizes. Get 15% off your entire order when you use code SEXEDWITHTIM at checkout. They're shipping to all of Canada and the United States because North America is horny. That's loveshop.ca slash sexedwithtim and use code sexedwithtim for 15% off your entire purchase. Happy orgasm! Do you like feeling sexy and looking sexy? Of course you do. Only my listeners are sexy as fuck. I have partnered with fetishwear designer Dale Kuda to bring you the hottest deals on custom jock straps, harnesses, hats, and more. Head over to dalekuda.com, that's D-A-L-E-K-U-D-A.com, and use code SEXEDWITHTIM at checkout for 25% off the entire store. Yeah, you heard me. 25% off. And cherry on top. Free shipping, oh my god. I have a few of the stuff that he has made for me. And girl, I'm wearing it right now. I'm wearing like a little jock strap so that I could easily just like slip a little butt plug or dildo every now and then here and there. And I'm on the train. I'm just like, uh, 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 thank you, Dale. <laughs> That's dalecuda.com with the code SEXEDWITHTIM for 25% off your entire purchase with free shipping. With a deal like that, I swear I could come buckets, honey. The show is about to begin. Yes. I, I can't imagine what it was like being in that position of like subjected to gay conversion therapy but what i can relate to is like when i was younger i was like struggling with uh my own sexuality and like i would watch porn and masturbate and while i'm like oh god i don't even want to say looking at a guy and then right before i climax i'll like switch it over to looking at a girl to like code myself (laughs) to reprogram myself oh that was such a struggle yeah oh like like, why why do people think that this was okay to begin with like who was the first person that thought that this is a thing that you can change like i I, i'm asking kind of like rhetorically but also semi-serious if you've done any research on like the origins of so there's there's a book calling uh there's a book that's coming out i believe this year through cornell university press uh it's called to cure a sinful nation uh and it's going to be looking at the the history of gay conversion therapy in the u.s and so that would probably be the book if anyone is interested to look at this text that or is it university of chicago it's either cornell or university of chicago i don't remember at this point i think it's actually university of chicago this doesn't matter though what matters is that there's a book coming out that's gonna be talking about this in the context of the u.s um, now, as for who started it, I certainly can't tell you who the first person was who started this. But what I can tell you is that I was at Northwestern University uh, just outside of Chicago a few years ago. It was 2018, I believe. And I was there and Dagmar Herzog, she's the scholar of the Holocaust and she looks specifically at gender and sexuality. And she was there at this the summer institute I was a part of. And she started talking about Nazi understandings of sexuality. And I remember sitting there and listening and being like, what the hell? Like, this sounds so familiar to my studies, uh, pardon me, my quote unquote studies uh, in conversion therapy. That is my experience in conversion therapy. 
And so I went up to her afterwards and she was the way, the way that she was framing uh, Nazis understanding of sexuality was that, that they believed you could change. They believed that you could become straight through a certain program. And I went up to her afterwards and I said to her, I said, Dagmar, I, you know, you've talked about this, how, how Nazis understood sexuality. And it sounds uncannily similar to the to what I was talking conversion therapy. And I said, has anyone done any research on the, the connection between Nazi understandings of sexuality and evangelical understandings of sexuality? And she said, no, but you should be the one to write the article. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't speak German, so I can't do that. But I, hearing that and understanding, you know, the, 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 what's the word, the resonances, the similarities between these two schools of thought, you know, I'm not saying that evangelicals are Nazis and, and they're not, that's, that would be a, a historical uh, argument that's completely inaccurate. But what I can say is when you share similar tendencies and or uh, ideologies to Nazis, maybe it's time that you reconsider your ideologies, or your tendencies, right? Your thinking or your ways of being. Maybe not align our thinking with the Nazi party, you know? <laughs> right. let's, let's decouple ourselves from that school of thought. What happened was in the 1970s, there were a few like groups essentially that, that sprung up, essentially gay conversion therapy groups that sprung up in evangelical circles, which then multiplied in the 80s into the 90s to the point where there were like you know dozens and dozens and dozens of quote unquote ministries gay conversion therapy ministries throughout the u.s canada and the world and so it's not that gay conversion therapy started in the 70s because before that there were a number of uh you know even like medical or uh, psychological sort of practices that tried to to change people tra change people's sexualities and their gender identities and expressions that that predated these 1970s groups but evangelicals really mobilized this way of thinking of course in the, 19, in the 1970s when the uh, when homosexuality was was no longer considered a mental illness that's when the medical community uh, started to push against this thinking and started to uh, uh, what's the word denounce this way, these sorts of thinking uh, the sort of thinking however there were certain medical communities even like CAMH actually uh, practiced conversion therapy up until recently um, and so these are things that um, we don't necessarily know about. These are certainly things that we don't talk about. But there is a long and sordid history of conversion therapy throughout the U.S. and Canada and the world that really, I think, if I, if I were to understand, or if I were to make a guess, probably started in the 1800s, late 1800s into the early, in and around the early 1900s, uh, and then just kept picking up steam as time went on. But, like, the main ideology or like the root foundation whatever you want to call it like the 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 basis of gay conversion therapy is that it's wrong to be gay based on a religious standpoint and there's no like what like scientific foundation for this I, I, i'm just having such a hard time figuring out why someone thought that this is like yeah a thing to yeah. do Again, there, there wasn't necessarily just like one first person who thought of this. What I will say is that there are different uh, forms of conversion therapy and there are different approaches to conversion therapy, some of which are religious, some of which are not. And so specifically the religious uh, conversion therapy approaches um, or, you know, approaches to conversion therapy. Uh, these are, these are practices uh, that attempt to change one's gender identity and or expression and sexual orientation. So evangelicals specifically think that there's that being gay is not really a thing. They believe that you there's no such thing as a homosexual, and some of these heterosexuals, quote unquote, struggle with same sex attraction, which is to say that these folks try to separate the identity of of being gay from the individual, and 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 say that instead of that being part of your identity, those are just actions that you do, 
which affords them the delusion that they're able to actually change people, right? That if you change the actions, then you change how people self-identify, which ultimately changes the individual to become, you know, a practicing heterosexual or at least a person who can find attraction to at least one uh, person of the opposite sex. And so this I, this understanding of, of someone's ability to change is of their theology. And their theology is that being gay is wrong. So there are six verses within the New Testament and the Hebrew Bible, what most folks refer to as the Old Testament, but I think it's more accurately referred to as, we should refer to it as the Hebrew Bible. Um, in both the Hebrew Bible and the Christian New Testament, uh, there are six main verses that are used to vilify queers. And so because of these six verses and people's understandings or maybe more accurately misunderstandings of these verses, that the Christian church has uh, for centuries said that sodomy and uh, specifically the action of like gay sex is wrong. This, this is, this is why like, it comes from, from uh, people's understanding of scripture. This is why people believe it's wrong to be gay. And then therefore they need a way, a solution. And the solution is in their estimation or more accurately their, their imagination, gay conversion therapy, right? That this is actually going to solve people's uh, or cure people's homosexuality as if it's something that needs to be cured. So really it's theological in, in, in uh, its foundation and then it's, it's the rest of it's uh, rooted in pseudoscience. Oh God, they weren't able to waterboard the homosexuality. <laughs> nope, they can keep trying, but, you know, maybe round two, uh, it'll work. I don't know, we'll find out. <laughs> oh, round two. I can't just like swallow loads out of my way of, of homosexuality. <laughs> water, of uh, loads and loads of water. What are some of the negative effects of gay conversion therapy that we can visibly see? Is there some sort of like visible trauma that, that we can see in victims of gay conversion therapy? Like, do you see them dejected? Are they like an empty shell of a man? I'm an empty shell of a man, not because of gay conversion therapy, just just in general, actually. That that was yeah, that, <laughs> that's that's been a problem I've been struggling with since childhood. I mean, this is the thing. I think most of the the consequences are not visible, right? They're not something that you can bear on your body. They're not something that you can show as if you would have these physical scars. And again, some people do. Some people do have literal physical scars on their bodies because of conversion therapy. But again, that's not that's not everyone's experience. And it certainly, again, was not my experience. And so I think, you know, going back to what I was talking about before, the, the enduring consequences of conversion therapy are, are legion, right? There are so many of them. And they range from, from depression to suicidal ideation, to guilt, to shame, to anxiety, uh, to self-hatred, you know, to religious trauma, right? They, they, there are a number of in different ways. These are things that people experience in different intensities and for different periods of time. And you, you know, a lot of people have to go through therapy after going through quote unquote therapy. And what I always say is that you shouldn't have to go through therapy after going through therapy, right? That this is uh, something that is of course counterintuitive and something that does not make sense. But this is what conversion therapy does to people. It turns people against themselves. It causes them to hate themselves and it causes them to identify themselves as an issue, as a problem, as something that needs to be fixed. And of course, we're not uh, in need of being fixed by simply being queer. But I think ultimately that people need to know that conversion therapy is something that still happens. This is not something that, again, only happens in religious communities, though, of course, it is something that happens predominantly in religious communities. And it's something that even, you know, if we're talking about, you know, the context of Canada, 
in Canada, conversion therapy, of course, was criminalized, but it's something that's going to continue to happen. People say, well, it's great that it's criminalized and, you know, uh, you can't do it anymore. It's like, yeah, it is great that it's criminalized, but people are going to still do it. It just, you know, if you think about any sort of crime, it's going to something. It's going to be something that's going to con- continue to happen regardless of the law. Uh, it's just going to go underground. It's just going to go undercover even more so than it already has. And so although we might celebrate and of course we should celebrate that Canada has criminalized conversion therapy, it's something that's going to continue to happen and it's something that we need to still be vigilant about and something that we need to still talk about because it's something that is going to continue to, to occur. Uh, that's so frustrating because it's like there's very much proof that gay conversion therapy doesn't work and mm-hmm. it's basically a human rights violation. So why is it still being practiced? Is it like just uh, to be like, you know, to stick with your guns, with your religious <laughs> guns and be like, no, it's wrong. It's one of those things where I think that people, you know, for, for a lot of us who are very comfortable in a secular setting, right, where a lot of us who are queer are not necessarily religious. This is not to say that there are not religious queers. There are many religious queers. Um, and there are a number of organizations that cater to these people. Putting those folks aside, though, a lot of us, and myself included now, like I'm not a part of a religious community, though I'm still very much, uh, I, I research religious communities for uh, my full-time job, specifically Liberty University. I look at this school uh, and their cultural, homopho- cultural homophobia, among other things. I, I look at a lot of things about Liberty. And so all this to say that for those of us outside of religious communities, we oftentimes think that like who in the world is still religious? Like, are there actually religious people out there? The answer is yes. Again, in various denominations and various religious traditions and very to, to various degrees or intensities, a lot of people in Canada and outside of Canada, of course, in the States, if we're thinking to, you know, about our neighbors to the South, a lot of folks are still religious. And so with that being said, uh, uh, and this is again not all Christians if we're thinking about Christians specifically but not all Christians are homophobes but a certainly a large number are there are some more mainline denominations or just more liberal Christians throughout you know the, the Christian world who are queer affirming they think it's okay to be gay and they celebrate queers and, and perhaps a lot of them are queer and some of them are not some of them are stylized so there are a number of religious traditions a lot of conservatives out there who still believe that it's wrong to be gay and so these are a significant percentage of, of these folks who are practicing conversion therapy are religious. And so these are the folks who, uh, because of their theology, because of their, what a lot of people would say, traditional views or maybe more accurately homophobic views, um, these are the folks who are practicing conversion therapy. Again, among others, uh, to, to answer your question, why are people still practicing conversion therapy? Because there are still Christians, because there are still conservative Christians, because there are still more accurately homophobic Christians and folks of other religions uh, who, pardon me, folks who subscribe to other religions. Again, it's it's to do with this this religious orthodoxy that really engenders uh, homophobia within these religious traditions. Is there any sort of like argument that that is homophobic that's not rooted in religion? Yeah, homophobia outside of religion. Here's the thing. I think there've got to be a number of folks, right? I mean, and there are a number of folks who are not religious who are still homophobic. You know, you can think of a number of Trump supporters specifically. You know, these folks aren't all Christians. They aren't all evangelicals. A lot of them are, but not all of them. And yet they still are homophobic. And I think that that comes from, you know, really a hatred of women, I think, at its root. But then, you know, uh, queers are oftentimes connected to women and understood as, uh, in some senses, women. Uh, because we are, well, because we're queer. 
And so, uh, because we like men, we are then lumped together and then ultimately seen as inferior because of course women are seen as inferior. I think that these are motivations for homophobia outside of religion. But I, what I will say is that religion really lends itself well to homophobia. There are certain verses and are maybe more accurately interpretations of verses that uh, really uh, give homophobia a platform, right? That really allow for homophobia to be intensified. So I, I don't know if I can say that homophobia is always a result of religion, but religion really um, amplifies homophobia to be sure. Uh, don't we all know it? <laughs> like, I wasn't there a movie? It's I am Michael. It's like it's the story of this gay couple, uh, Benoit Denizette Lewis, and then Michael Glatzy. Basically, Michael renounces his homosexuality and is now like a okay, <laughs> a, a conservative Christian. <laughs> like, are you like he even went so far as to have like a wife and like he, he's I don't know what's going on there, like <laughs> I. <laughs> You just can't look at the story seriously and be like, you really renounced your homosexuality? Really? Because, <laughs> like, Michael and Benoit, they were, like, well, together you know for a couple I of years. I think if you're, if you're interested in those sort of what, what, what how they, they identify as ex-gays, I met some guys. I remember there was this one guy. We'll call him, uh, let's call him Jonathan to keep it biblical. Um, and so Jonathan uh, and I met early on at Liberty. And we were at my work. I was able to have friends over at my work. And so I, I was the switchboard operator. So you call Liberty University and you get me and I transfer your call. So one time Jonathan shows up uh, and we're sitting there chilling, we're talking. And he knew something was up. He knew that I was sad. And the reason why I was sad was because my spiritual life director had made a move on me. And then we had a really bizarre, uh, quote unquote, romantic encounter. Very sad about it. I used to go and cry in the parking lot. He knew I was sad and he knew that it was something to do with my, my spiritual life director. And I said to him, he was like, like, tell me what happened. I said, no, I can't tell you what happened. I said, you're going to judge me if I do. But what I can do is I can read you a poem that I wrote about it. <laughs> oh, I read him, I read him this poem and it was just terrible. Right? I still have the poem. It was called, do you ever notice how cold it gets in the fall? <laughs> so I, I, I read him this poem and, and, and Jonathan afterwards, he looked at me and, and, and then I realized this face afterwards, he, whenever we talked about anything, you know, sexual, you get these like really funny quivery lips and his lips started to be like, you know, quivering. Oh, and, and, and I, and he looks at me after this and he has these quivery lips and he says, I think I know what you're talking about. And I was like, Oh shoot, my cover's blown. Like he knows I'm gay. And so, um, he says, I think I know what you're talking about. I said, I said, Whoa, whoa. I said, I don't, I'm, I, what do you think it is? And he said, well, I don't want to guess and be wrong. I said, why would you be, uh, why, like, why would you care? He said, well, then he said, then you'll know that I also struggle with the same thing. And I'm like, wait, what? And the moment he said struggle with it, like that was again a dog whistle for saying, hey, I'm gay. And so I was like, so I was like, wait, I think we might be talking about the same thing. And I said, do you struggle? And it was, we kind of had this fumbling back and forth. And finally we were both like, we, I struggle with same-sex attraction. I struggle with same-sex attraction. And so he, afterwards we talked about it and we were like, uh, you know, like how long have you liked guys? You know, um, have you ever, you know, uh, liked a woman? You know, in the office when Mindy Kelly tells Ryan, she's like, I'm pregnant. And the camera pans to her, like goes to her in the confessional and she like shakes her head. No, that's what was like me. I was like, I'm bisexual. And then the camera panned back to me and I looked at it. I was like, at the camera, I was like, no, I'm not just kidding. So I, I, uh, I said, have you ever been attracted to a woman? He says to me at the time, he goes, no, never. Well, that guy is now married with, I think two 
two, one or two kids, I think two kids at this point, um, to a woman, he's married to a woman, I should say. And I remember it was like years after I graduated, he and I met up, I, I came back to Lynchburg, which is where Liberty is. I came back in uh, 2015, I was on my way to, to Connecticut for some research and I was living in Nashville at the time. And so I was driving back and we stopped at this bar um, in, in Lynchburg, uh, my, part, my ex-partner and I. We're all sitting there talking and I look at, at Jonathan and I point to my now ex and I point to him and I go, that's my boyfriend. And like mouth it to him so only he can see. And he goes, what? And he gets those like quivery lips again. He's like, oh, so he's like, oh, can we go, can we go talk in the corner? So we go and talk in the corner. And he's like, what? You're, 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 you're sort of like live, living as a gay man. Like you're, you're, you're living a lifestyle, whatever the hell that is. And he's going on and he's like, he's like, do you think God's okay with it? Do you think that, yeah, like what is the gay lifestyle? Like I know what a vegan lifestyle is, but what's a gay lifestyle? Anyway. Um, and so he says like, he's like, uh, like, do you think God's okay with it? When did you like decide this? How long have you guys been together? Blah, blah, blah. And he's asking all these questions. And then his, his wife was on the way, like she was on the way to the bar to come meet us. And he said like, you know, my, my wife's on the way, he used her name, but I won't use her name. He's like, she's on the way, so I can't really talk to you too long. And I'd love to talk to you more about this. Um, can I call you sometime? And I was like, yeah, of course. And so he, Jonathan, quote unquote Jonathan, never called. And I, and I still think about it. I'm like, why didn't he call? Like, what was the reason for not calling? And I think for him, it was like such a scary possibility to be queer. Because if in fact it were okay to be gay and is okay to be gay, then well, he made a big mistake, right? Like he got married to a woman um, who, by the way, knows he's gay. Like he, she literally knows that he likes men and went through conversion therapy. Um, but that's a different story why she's okay with it. You know, if he got married to her, you know, then that was a mistake. And now that he has kids, you know, what would he do now? Would he, would he give his life up with, you know, for that he has with, with his kids in order to, to be happy? And of course, like the answer is he probably should. But I think within evangelicalism, it's so hard to get outside of that community, especially when you've always been within that community because he was born and raised in it. And so I think that there are a number of reasons why he remains in this really, you know, ultimately, I would, I would, I would assume loveless and sexless marriage other than having children and why he puts himself through this, right? Like he is someone who's never been attracted to a woman. He's not attracted to his wife either, obviously. And so with that being said, why? And I think that there are, again, a number of reasons, but really like evangelicalism and religious conservatism more general is so um, powerful. It's so all-consuming in the sense that your entire life revolves around it. So if you are to move outside of it and to be openly gay is to move outside of it in that in, the, in that religious and those religious traditions, it's to change your entire world, which I think is quite scary for a lot of, of a lot of these queer Christians. It's not a slay, as the Gen Z would uh, put it. <laughs> it's not slay. Um, <laughs> the only way I'll ever accept it is if from Arrested Development. <laughs> Remember that opening scene in the pilot where she's like, "Look at what the homosexuals have done to me. Everything they do is so dramatic and flamboyant. It just makes me want to set myself on fire." Oh, and then it's like it, that connects to like Jennifer Coolidge in White Lotus, right? Where she's like talking about those affluent gays. Want <laughs> to murder me? <laughs> <laughs> oh wait, wait, here's here's my Jennifer Coolidge impression. She's like, "Oh my god, they want to marry." I love it. Oh, I love it. She's the best. I love her so much. Oh my god, see, that's the only that's the only way yeah. I support homophobia. That's that's some homophobia I can get behind, right? <laughs> because yeah. she wants to change it for the better. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? I always say that. 
the one the one negative unintended consequence of really you know people becoming allies is that nowadays you can't tell who's gay by how they dress right like metrosexuality used to be its own thing yeah it's like used to be on the ttc on the subway and you could tell who was gay and who's not now walking down the street or on the subway you can't tell who's who's gay and who's straight and i'm like you know we've made so many advances but this is an advance that i just don't know if i can get behind you know, I want to get back to the days. I know. Where- Maybe we should start. <laughs> we should start being homophobic and try to like segregate again. You know, keep yeah. our and we'll expand the village back to its original glory. Yeah, and people are not welcome here. Yeah, I doubt it. <laughs> My God, see, this is the kind of gay conversion therapy we need. In the sense that, like, we need to convert more gay people. Yeah, conservatives for years have been saying that we've been trying to, you know, convert the children to to be gay. And now all of a sudden it's like, you know what? You pushed us to such a point that we're going to do it because we missed the village, you know? We're going to do it. Yeah, right? <laughs> See, you brought this upon yourselves, conservatives. We're going to start doing straight conversion prophecy. therapy. <laughs> now that we know the the history with gay conversion therapy and uh, like its effects, what do we do with this information, Luke? Yeah, so, and I should say right out, you know, I should have said this maybe at the outset of the the interview, I wouldn't call myself a scholar of conversion therapy. I am someone who uh, is more accurately a scholar of evangelicals, um, and part of what I look at is conversion therapy. But as someone who has both undergone conversion therapy and writes about conversion therapy and is increasingly, you know, reading and researching more and more about conversion therapy, I what I can say is that it's important to talk about these things first and foremost. And I think this is something that should be included in curricula when we talk about gender, when we talk about sexuality. This is how homophobia expresses itself, not just within conversion therapy spaces, but it, it more generally within the, the greater culture that, you know, people oftentimes try to turn people straight. People try to turn themselves straight, right? How many queer people and probably the folks who are listening to this podcast have tried in the path to become straight or to be what something that they're not, right? And it's not that this is only, you know, bound to or confined to conversion therapy spaces. Um, this is something that affects a lot of queers. And so when we talk about conversion therapy, we can apply it more broadly as a space or as a place of uh, conversion therapy practices, whether they be self-inflicted or uh, inflicted upon others. And so... I think that the more we talk about it and the more we talk about this specifically within, edu- within educational context is important. Um, and I think we also need to think about this as, a, as not just a Canadian, uh, we need to think about this not in the, just in the context of Canada, but in the context of other countries. If we think again, even just to the South, right? We think about America, you know, the US, this is a place where in a number of states, conversion therapy is still legal. Um, if we think about globally, this is a thing, this is a practice that a number of countries employ. And, you know, in a number of countries, it's, it's quote unquote illegal to be gay, right? Like you're not allowed to be a queer person. And of course, not in all of these countries, but in a number of the country, these countries, conversion therapy is the method of trying to address this issue. Our, and the issue, again, is not really an issue. It's just that <laughs> there are queer people in the world and that people try to change these people. So these are things that, these are practices that, again, affect people worldwide and again will continue to affect canadians uh and americans and again the whole world right just because canada has uh uh, criminalized conversion therapy does not mean that it's not going to still happen so it's best to talk about these things it's best to educate ourselves about these things and to read more again the book about conversion therapy and the history in the u.s uh, that i talked about before uh to cure a sinful nation think that again we all should be looking 
I have texts like that, other books, other podcasts, other whatever, um, op-eds that talk about conversion therapy because this is a reality for a lot of people uh, and, of course, a very, very unfortunate reality. First of all, thank you so much for saying that. And I think it really is, like, the main takeaway of this episode, which is, like, to educate yourself on the tools of the oppressor so that you can, like, prevent any more of this uh barbaric acts from happening it's like it's outdated there's no proof behind it girl like <laughs> throw it away <laughs> throw the whole yeah. ideology away <laughs> it's just yeah so thank you so much luke like for your insight your wisdom and your cooking <laughs> or lack thereof tell that to the judge I'm a Luke. I'm a Luke Wilson truther. <laughs> I'm a Luke Wilson truther, uh, Luke. So before we sign off, and uh, you know, and before we wrap up, and I hate to wrap up anything. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> can you please make like a butt and plug away anything you want the audience to find? If it's like social media, any publications? Yeah. So uh, you can find me on Instagram at Luke Slam Dunk Wilson. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Wilson underscore FW. Otherwise, I'm trying to think, is there anything else? I have uh, some academic articles coming out uh, in the near future, but I don't think a lot of people are going to want to read those <laughs> unless they're interested uh, specifically in uh, second, <laughs> yeah, second and third generation Holocaust literature. Um, but otherwise, uh, I write somewhat regularly on different topics as they relate to conversion therapy, Christian evangelicalism, Christianity, evangelicalism, Christian fundamentalism that kind of stuff in Liberty University specifically. And so uh, those articles come out, you know, a few times a year. And yeah, follow me on, on social media and I, I love to engage with folks. So uh, reach out, please. Love that because you love to write nothing more than lighthearted <laughs> topics such as conversion therapy yeah. and all. <laughs> what does my life become? I don't know. I, uh, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> well, it's, it's very on brand the for lifestyle. the gay lifestyle. We're all just miserable. <laughs> Us unhappy queers. Well, <laughs> that is the gay lifestyle. Just you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a bit of an oxymoron, isn't it? Unhappy and queer, um, <laughs> according to the religious right. Uh, well, anyways, Luke, thank you, uh, thank you so much again for sharing your wisdom, your knowledge, and uh, your insights. And to all the people that have made it this far into this chaotic ass conversation, and don't forget to give Luke and me a follow on the socials and i'll put everything that we've talked about in the show notes thank you so much for listening to another episode of the sex head with tim podcast and i will see you at the next episode bye thanks for listening to the sex head with tim podcast sex head with tim is created and produced by me tim lagman music is aces high by kevin mcleod follow me on twitter and instagram at gay slut clown and at sex head with tim you can also like and follow me on the sex head with tim facebook page if you enjoyed the show please rate review and subscribe on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you get your podcasts thanks for all your support you dirty little slut Mwah.